Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle, and coming up on the program, Silver Springs in Ocala is called the first tourist attraction in Florida. There are less than 1,000 people visiting a month in 1924, and by 1950, they had half a million visitors, and by 1962, a million people were visiting Silver Springs State Park, and that was by far the most visited attraction in Florida at the time. We'll discuss the Florida Southern Railway. When it began in 1879, and actually through the 1880s, it was the largest of the narrow gauge rail lines in the entire state of Florida. And talk about archeology span at African-American cemeteries. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. This is a little crack, that's where your water comes out of, and that's the spring, we call this one Spring of the Stars. All throughout the trip, we might see fish down there, smaller ones with the stripes are bluegill, long fish with the long snout or gar, what's for the gar. Yeah, fish food, feel free to feed fish anytime you like. Glass-bottom boat tours began at Silver Springs in the 1870s and continue today. Silver Springs, located in Ocala, is considered to be Florida's first tourist attraction. Craig Lidauer is a park ranger at Silver Springs State Park. Nowadays, you can get in your car, go down the highway, pull right up into the parking lot, but back then there were really no roads. People will have to take a pretty long voyage by steamship and they would come all the way up the Ocklawaha River until they would get up to Silver Springs. And the people that visited here back then, such as Harriet Beecher Stowe was here in 1878, rather. Uh, Sidney Lanier was here in 1876. And we have um, their accounts of visiting Silver Springs and they wrote glowingly of the water quality, all of the different colors, all of the wildlife that was there. Actress Janine Klein reads Harriet Beecher Stowe's description of her trip to Silver Springs. A party of us got into a little skiff and floated over the transparent depth. Every variety of water plant was growing and waving over the varied surfaces of the bottom, which had its heights and depths, its caverns and grottos. We could see the fish darting hither and thither and mark on the brilliant sands at the bottom various objects which had been thrown in by experimenting travelers. The water was of about the same high temperature with the spring at Green Cave. The shores were clothed with tropical forests all around. And here and there we could see starry flocks of a peculiar and beautiful white lily, which grows abundantly on these waters. From a star-shaped calyx of six narrow white leaves comes out a silver cup. From the edges of this cup rise six stamens with their golden heads. By about ten o'clock we had left the silver spring with its crystal waters behind. Our romance was over, and our faces set homeward. Yet that evening, as we sat on deck going through the narrows of the Aklawaha, we felt that the spell of illusion was not quite broken. 
along the way, there were all these different stops that these boats would make. Um, they would deliver and pick up mail as well as exchange goods with um, local hunters, trappers, fishermen. And the boats that would come down here were pretty narrow and they would have to actually put long poles to you know, push their way off the banks and cut trees if they had to. It was kind of difficult getting in here. But over time, you know, they, they got railroad access into Silver Springs. And then, you know, when the car was invented, they were able, they had roads and now people can just drive right up to it. From the 1870s to the present, Silver Springs is perhaps best known for the glass bottom boats that allow visitors to see under the clear water and view the flora and fauna around it. As far as we can tell, the glass bottom boats were invented here. You know, they're found in attractions now in many parts of the world, including other Florida state parks and other Florida old roadside attractions. But from as far as we can tell, they were invented here. And it was a couple of enterprising teenagers that lived here locally that decided to put uh, some panes of glass on their rowboats and they started charging people for it and it just grew from there. You know, they started out just real simple, taking people on a ride on their rowboat that they put a pane of glass on until eventually, you know, you had motorized glass bottom boats that could fit many more people. Um, the boats that are in operation today are the exact same boats from the 1960s. And when this became a state park, they all got brand new electric motors, but these are the same exact boats from the early 1960s. In the past, it was not uncommon for visitors to Silver Springs to hear a little mythology mixed in with facts about Florida history. For example, the glass-bottom boat captains would entertain tourists by telling them that a submerged 18th century rowboat belonged to 16th century Spanish explorer Hernando de Soto. Park Ranger Craig Litauer. There are a bunch of limestone rocks down there that they used to tell people were dinosaur bones. To give you an example, and we know that dinosaurs were never in Florida and they were just rocks. And, but they would tell people on the tour that they were looking at dinosaur bones. And so some of the captains now will tell people, we used to tell people that these were dinosaur bones. Today, visitors to Silver Springs can get accurate information about Florida history in the Silver River Museum and Environmental Education Center. The Silver River Museum and Environmental Education Center is actually run by the Marion County Public Schools and it's a unique and very worthwhile partnership with Florida State Parks. They started in about 1991, uh, long before things like the campground, um, the ranger station, the cabins were built at what used to be known as Silver River State Park. And right now they take fourth and fifth graders, pretty much every fourth and fifth grade class in this county goes there for a field trip. Uh, fourth grade learns about Florida history because they have a, a pioneer village there known as the Cracker Village. They have a replica as well as original structures showing um, different time periods of pioneer days in Florida. Inside the museum are exhibits covering different periods of Florida history from European contact to the present, as well as displays exploring the area's prehistory. They have a number of artifacts and fossils that have been found in the Silver River, the Ocklawaha River, or in the surrounding area going back uh, many, many years, you know, with uh, human habitation here, which there's a very long history of, as well as, you know, the, the Pleistocene megafauna, like the mammoth and Macedon. They have, you know, a completely articulated skeleton of uh, a mammoth 
in the museum. So when you go in there, that's one of the more impressive things that you see. In 1985, the state of Florida bought Silver Springs and created the 5,000-acre Silver River State Park. The Silver Springs attraction was operated by a private company until 2013 when the state took over and renamed the facility Silver Springs State Park. While the famous glass-bottom boats are still in operation, some elements from the old days are no longer around. They just did things um, a little bit differently than we do now. For example, Ross Allen Reptile Institute who um, was here since the 1930s. Uh, he started the Reptile Institute in 1931. They did things like they would buy snakes from anybody that would bring them live snakes and they would milk, you know, diamondback rattlesnakes. They would go to expeditions in South America, bring an anaconda, release it in the spring, and then wrestle it. You know, as a state park, those are not really the kinds of things that we do. Um, they were very popular. A huge part of the success of this place, you know, there were so many amazing, entertaining things that they did, as well as educating the public. But as a Florida State Park, we're trying to preserve, interpret, and restore our natural and cultural resources out here. And so rounding up um, alligators and snakes to wrestle them isn't really part of what we do. But it is an important part of this place's past. In 1924, Walter Carl Ray Sr. and William Shorty Davidson took Silver Springs from a small tourist attraction to new heights of success that continued into the 1960s. There were less than 1,000 people visiting a month in 1924, and by 1950, they had half a million visitors, and by 1962, a million people were visiting Silver Springs State Park, and that was by far the most visited attraction in Florida at the time. And a million might not sound like a lot in today's terms. We have over 100 million people visiting Florida right now, uh, about a year. But back then, there were far fewer people visiting Florida. So a million to visit Silver Springs in a year was quite an achievement. And that era from 1924 to 1962, we refer to as the Ray and Davidson years. And that's kind of when the Silver Springs attraction was at its peak. Silver Springs is one of the world's largest artesian springs, and today the state park provides more access to the water than ever before. Park ranger Craig Litauer. What we're trying to do here as a state park is trying to return it to that era, return the focus to be on the water and the glass bottom boats. Um, when this became a state park, you could launch a canoe or kayak for the first time. And so we're trying to get people out on the water as much as possible um, to see you know, the, the water bubbling out of the springs here, which I believe we have three first magnitude springs. Right here at um, Silver Springs, there's actually about 30 spring vents in the first mile or so of the river. And the river goes for about five miles before it meets the Ocklawaha and on down to the St. John's and into Jacksonville. Visitors to Silver Springs can catch a glimpse of wild monkeys in the trees in some parts of the park, some believe that the monkeys were brought here in 1938 for the filming of Tarzan Finds a Son. Oh, <laughs> 
the monkeys, as far as we know, were brought here in the 1930s by a gentleman named Colonel Tui. He ran uh, a tour boat operation called the Jungle Cruise. And we believe that, from what we understand, he got some rhesus macaques and released them on one of the islands on the river. And he didn't realize that they could swim. He was told that they couldn't swim. He thought that he could just put them on this island and they would be there. But they swam off the island. And we believe the, the macaques that are here today are descended from those. The producers of Tarzan Finds a Son were not the only filmmakers to utilize the clear water and picturesque setting of Silver Springs. Other films shot on location here include the 1965 James Bond movie Thunderball, the 1951 film The Barefoot Mailman, and many others. Before coming to Silver Springs, filmmaker and underwater actor Rico Browning worked as a professional swimmer at Wikiwachi Springs, another tourist attraction that utilizes Florida nature. While Silver Springs is known for its glass-bottom boats, Wikiwachi is famous for its mermaid shows. We put on an underwater night show at Wikiwachi, and it was very successful. However, there was only one motel at Wikiwachi at that time and you had to travel 18 miles into Brooksville to get to the next motel. So I got the bright idea, why not go to Silver Springs? Because they got motels everywhere and tourists and do an underwater show there at night. So I came up and talked to Bill Ray, who was the son of Ray Davidson and Ray, and his brother, uh, Buck Ray, who was the general manager. And I talked to them about doing a night show at Silver Springs and building an underwater theater. And they turned me down. But just as I was leaving, Bill said, Bill Ray, he said, Rico, look, why don't you let me give you a job here? And over a period of time, we'll talk him into doing it. I said, well, fine. So he made me the assistant director of public relations at Silver Springs. And I was in that job for about five years. While working at Silver Springs, Browning met director Jack Arnold. That led to Browning performing in all three Creature from the Black Lagoon movies in the 1950s, wearing the iconic Gillman costume in the underwater scenes. Well, at first, I put it this way, when you're a kid and you play football, you put on a uniform, shoulder pads and everything, and it's pretty clumsy. But when you get in a game, you forget you even have it on. So it was about the same with the suit. It was a little awkward, but once I got into the water and started using it, I forgot I have it on. Browning was also co-creator of the film and television series Flipper. After his three-movie stint as the creature from the Black Lagoon, Browning became the stuntman and underwater director for the popular TV series Sea Hunt, shooting at Silver Springs. We did a third year of Sea Hunt at Silver Springs and shot all the episodes for that year. And uh, I was hired to just be the bad guy. And I would fight Courtney Brown, who was the double for Lloyd Bridges, in just about every scene. And I had to wear different bathing suits, different hair or makeup, and uh, either go as a blonde or a brunette, or wear a hood. And uh, I enjoyed it very much. and. Uh, we then moved to Nassau and shot the remaining couple of years of Sea Hunt over there. 
The historic Silver Spring State Park is located in Ocala and is still home to the famous glass bottom boats. Look at that turtle, Justin. Again, smaller fish with yes. the stripes are going to get a long fish with the long snouts. This is Florida Frontiers. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org where you can find great books on Florida history and culture, watch archived episodes of our television series, Florida Frontiers, and subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, a lot of our listeners are familiar with railroad barons Henry Flagler and Henry Plant, but one Florida railway came before both of them but is a lot less well-known. Yeah, that's right, Ben. I I doubt many people are familiar with the Florida Southern Railway. But when it began in 1879 and actually through the 1880s, it was the largest of the narrow gauge rail lines in the entire state of Florida. And it ran essentially along what would become the I-4 corridor, kind of crisscrossing from roughly Palatka down toward Charlotte Harbor and would eventually become part of a, a broader network of rail lines. But in the 1870s and 1880s, this was a very ambitious ambitious undertaking to try and create a railroad infrastructure throughout the interior of Florida and really develop the state of Florida south of the Alachua County area. So originally in 1879, the organization started or or formed as the Gainesville, Ocala, and Charlotte Harbor Railroad in 1879, but they rebranded in 1881 and became the Florida Southern Railway, which is a bit of a shorter name, a little bit catchier, I'm sure, for investors. And as part of that, they started a very aggressive marketing campaign because you couldn't have a successful railroad without selling land. You had to sell land and you had to attract people to purchase that land. And then you also needed to export agricultural goods from the people who were purchasing that land from you. So it was quite a scheme and and Florida was a big part of that. And the Florida Southern Railway story is uh, really integral to that early development of the railroad industry in Florida. Ben, you have here a rather large map from 1887 showing the proposed route of the Florida Southern Railway. Yeah, that's right. What we're looking at is a map entitled New Sectional Map of Eastern and Southern Portion of the State of Florida, issued by the Land Department of the Florida Southern Railway Company, showing lands owned and offered for sale by the said department. They call it the Orange Belt Line. Now, you're right. This is a fairly large map. It measures about three and a half feet by almost two feet wide. And and this particular map is in actually really good shape. You can see a lot of the original coloration still exists there. And as I said, it covers the entire state of Florida. You can find just about every town that existed in 1888 featured here on this Florida Southern Railway Company map. 
You'll also notice that this is a sectional map, and it says that in the title. And what that means is the map shows the gridded lines, the township range, and then sectional lines that would become the legal descriptions, essentially, for the state. So if somebody was interested in investing in property, they would use these legal descriptions, township and range lines. So this map was really created for potential investors and potential immigrants to come to Florida, but you needed to know exactly where you wanted to settle. And you're right, it shows the proposed path, at least parts of the existing path. So the original rail line started in Palatka, then headed west, and then eventually headed south toward Charlotte Harbor. And as I mentioned before, the railroad really wasn't a single set of tracks. It was actually kind of a start and stop sort of operation. So they would build a section of tracks and then it would often stop and then they'd work in a different area connected to another line. Parts of the company would be broken up and it got very kind of complicated. But you can see through this map how the route sort of slowly began to wind down the peninsula towards the Gulf Coast and eventually reached the Gulf Coast by the 1880s. What happened to the railway lines that were constructed by Southern Railway? In 1890, the railroad actually went into receivership. So this map obviously didn't work well enough. They weren't selling enough land, and they weren't making enough money off of it. And it was actually Henry Plant who stepped in and helped to save the railroad line. He had already invested heavily because he didn't want any competitors building another line coming south out of the Ocala area. So he ended up purchasing the majority of the rail lines in 1890, and then in 1892, he changed the name to the Florida Southern Railroad, and then began in earnest developing his lines in conjunction with the Florida Southern, and it became a single track line through the 1890s, and was fairly successful until 1895. And it's kind of ironic, it was called the Orange Belt Route, and really survived and was integral to the production of citrus in Florida. But in 1895, there was a really bad freeze in Florida that destroyed a lot of the citrus crops. And as a result, the rail line suffered tremendously because of that. So even though they were still selling land, by the beginning of the 20th century, the entire tracks were actually purchased by the Seaboard Airline, which eventually became a part of a, a larger network that lasted into the 1960s as a passenger and commercial freight service. So parts of the track are actually still in use today. But again, that, that history of really beginning in 1879 as the Florida Southern, I think, is lost on a lot of Floridians today. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see the 1887 Florida Southern Railway map we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. It's a sad fact that development in Florida has taken place right on top of African-American cemeteries and natural growth has overtaken others. Attempts are being made to document and protect these cemeteries. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. The Florida Public Archaeology Network, or FPAN, is an organization dedicated to the protection and preservation of Florida's archaeological resources. Emma Dietrich is the Public Archaeology Coordinator for FPAN, established in 2004. She recently talked with me about FPAN's goal to preserve and protect African-American cemeteries in Florida. Cemeteries are important cultural and historical sites that are vulnerable to destruction from development, vandalism, and the passage of time. 
As Emma Dietrich explains, African-American cemeteries in Florida have been especially at risk of being destroyed or forgotten. Our job is to promote Florida's buried and submerged past, and we do that through public engagement and education, uh, stewardship and conservation. There's been a lot of recent discussions about the intentional destruction or removal of African-American cemeteries to make way for development sites. And we work in cemeteries just to talk about cemeteries as archaeological sites or as cultural sites. Because if you talk to someone about the history in the cemetery, someone's going to be like, no, that's just, you know, where you go bury your dead. It's a cemetery. But the headstones have their own stories. The individuals who are interred there have had stories and lives. Cemeteries can teach us a lot about history, kinship, and religious beliefs. The headstones themselves are valuable historical records, particularly for African Americans who often have little documentation of their ancestors' lives. Decorations left on graves in Florida, such as mementos, stones, figurines, trinkets, and shells, also tell a story. For instance, shell ornaments, similar to those used in the Caribbean and in Africa to decorate graves, can also be found in African-American cemeteries throughout Florida. They are a great way to learn about a community is by going through the cemetery, because you'll be able to find, you know, the community founders, these kind of locally famous people, the ones who have intense lore about them. But at the same time, you can look at cemeteries and understand socioeconomic standing. You can understand um, religion. If a group had a specific religion, they're evidenced in the headstones themselves. So it's a, an intentional physical monument to those individuals. And as an archaeologist, we're all anthropologists. We're actively looking for the people. And what better place to look for people from the past than in the cemetery? African-American cemeteries across Florida are increasingly at risk of being erased. Fortunately, there are several ways that communities can assist in the preservation of cemeteries. Emma Dietrich. We have a few programs that we do that focus on cemetery, just preservation. We have our cemetery resource protection training that we offer. And what it does, it just discusses the laws that protect cemeteries within the state of Florida and within the United States. Then it talks about how to develop a management plan. So just imagine what's your cemetery going to look like in 100 years? Is it going to be there? Figuring out what needs to be done to save this area or at least preserve it and document it. And what we're seeing right now is Florida has over 6,000 cemeteries in the state of Florida, but our state recording of those sites does not even meet that mark. We're looking more around a couple thousand. And just that idea of some of these cemeteries are unknown to historical research or unknown in the state database. So we also try to promote recording your cemetery with the Florida Master Site File to kind of ensure a little bit of a protection will at least remember or know that there's a cemetery in this area. Cemeteries are sacred spaces where families memorialize their loved ones. They're also important archaeological and cultural sites that leave behind evidence of past lives. Documenting and protecting these cemeteries ensures that the people interred there are not forgotten. For more information about the Florida Public Archaeology Network's efforts to preserve African-American cemeteries in Florida, go to fpan.us. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. 
Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week and stay safe and healthy. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.